to the Game Before the Money podcast, celebrating pro and college football history. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael, and with me today is author John Eisenberg. John and I first met at the Texas Book Festival several years ago. He was promoting his book, Ten Gallon War, which is about the Dallas Texans and the Dallas Cowboys trying to get fans to come to their games in the early 1960s. The Dallas Texans ended up moving to Kansas City, and they are now the Kansas City Chiefs. But that's a great book, Ten Gallon War, that John Eisenberg wrote several years ago. He's got a new book. It's called Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. And in this interview, we're going to celebrate the careers of players like Warren Moon, James Harris, Doug Williams, and talk a little bit also about Eldridge Dickey, great quarterback in college at Tennessee State, had a great Texas high school football career as well, nicknamed the Lord's Prayer. John Eisenberg, many great books. I recommend that if you haven't read his work, that you do so. I think the first book of his that I read was called That First Season, which was about Vince Lombardi's first season with the Green Bay Packers in 1959. That's an excellent book. He wrote Cotton Bowl Days, about the Dallas Cowboys playing in the Cotton Bowl in the years before Texas Stadium. He's also got a book called The League, focusing on some of the early owners of the National Football League. John Eisenberg, great sports fan, great sports writer, great student of the history of the game, and I think you'll really enjoy this interview with him. Don't forget to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Please remember that The Game Before the Money is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, and I'm always appreciative of the donations people send via PayPal. You can donate on thegamebeforethemoney.com. And without further ado, here's a great interview, great chat with writer John Eisenberg about his book, Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. The first question I'm going to ask is probably the most common question, but, but your new book, Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. What inspired you to write it? Well, uh, it's my 11th book, uh, and I've done uh, the prior ones include a lot of sports history, uh, football, uh, baseball, and uh, horse racing. And I also uh, wrote uh, uh, you know, sports columns and newspapers and websites for 40 years. And there was always a thread of race running through a lot of what I did. You know, that is something that always interested me. If you, like for years when I wrote columns in Baltimore Sun, uh, and uh, I would sometimes write about black athletes, obviously. And, and uh, I remember at the, the uh, Winter Olympics once writing about a figure skater, Debbie Thomas, a black figure skater who won a bronze medal. And I wrote some columns and I came home from the Olympics and gotten all this awful mail, you know, uh, which doesn't bear repeating. And it just kind of shocked me. And, and certainly if you uh, are, are in a public-facing job and you deal with that for, for many years, it gets your attention. 
And so the black quarterback story is one that uh, I felt was would be good to shine a light on uh, exactly what happened here because uh, uh, I'm in Baltimore where Lamar Jackson landed about five years ago, now six. And, and certainly when he was coming out of college, he dealt with a lot of the old sort of prejudices. He should be a running back. He should be a wide receiver. Was he smart enough? All this stuff that a lot of black quarterbacks dealt with and so I've had it up close here for a few years, and you just added all that up. I thought, well, this this is a great story. Uh, I think it's important for people to know what happened uh, over over time at the position with black quarterbacks, and just tell the story and uh, make sure that people are aware how popular football is. But let's be clear about what happened at this position. That's a great thing to do. I mean, there's and there's so much history there. You mentioned at the quarterback position, there was also middle linebacker. There was also center. There was also, uh, for a time, free safety. Those were considered the quote-unquote thinking positions. And blacks were not generally allowed to play those positions. That's exactly right. Uh, the the thinking positions. It was the the it was just a straight white power structure in the NFL. Certainly, you go to the fifties, sixties. The 70s, you know, all the owners, uh, all the coaches, uh, all the general managers, all the decision makers. And so uh, they had all the power. And uh, it was uh, the the sort of prejudices coming out of the 50s or 40s were were, uh, you know, were was a was a black person smart enough to to run an offense, call the signals? Uh, would there be did they have enough discipline? Would they work hard? Would they come through in the clutch? Would teammates look up to them? Just all sorts of stuff. And so at the quarterback position, this was really without any uh, without any basis because there were no black quarterbacks. Uh, but it was also true at middle linebacker, as you said, safety, anywhere where signals were called or were thinking or was necessitated or thought to be necessitated. So it was a pretty searing state of affairs and uh, very difficult on generations of black athletes. And I think it's uh, important to... Uh just point out that this wasn't just an NFL kind of thought paradigm. This was this was a, a lot a, a fair part of society as a whole. Absolutely, this this mirrored society. What we're really talking about here is black leadership. Uh, just the whole notion of it, and uh, it was also true in uh, the law. In uh, business, uh, I think the first black CEO of a Fortune 500 company was in like 1987. Uh, the first Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, in the military, which of course was segregated through World War II, uh, not until after Harry Truman had to sign an executive order to integrate the military. Uh, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, was black. 1989, I think, the first black Joint Chiefs of Staff. So they're just across society, really. Uh, this is just another example of uh, long-held, long-standing white institutions uh, grudgingly acknowledging that uh, black leadership was something uh, that it would entertain and, and then finally accept as legitimate. Now, asking who was the first pro football black quarterback is kind of like asking who invented rock and roll um i i've always i've always kind of thought it was george talaferro but then of course there's willie thrower there's kenny washington 
Choo Choo Charlie Brackens also in there. And, and you even dug back and found, found some single-wing tailbacks who, who might even qualify. Yes. Well, Joe Lillard, uh, if you go back into the 30s, uh, Joe Lillard, uh, right before the NFL went all white in 1934, Joe Lillard was a single wing tailback that could throw, could run, but he, he had a, a real rough time on the, on and off the field, really uh, in an era where the NFL just was not accepting of black players for the most part. And, and so he was out of the pros. But, uh, yes, uh, there are, there's just a whole bunch of them. I mean, the no, whole notion of a quarterback. I mean, uh, the first black starting quarter. I mean, Fritz Pollard started a game in 1923. I found the box score. He was the quarterback. But And as I say in the book, he, I mean, it's sort of an asterisk because uh, it was the single wing. And it was this was the old school single wing where everything ran through the tailback. The quarterback was a minor position. Uh, and so he, it did a lot of blocking. And, and, and it was not a, not a, that important. It was only when you started to see the modern offenses and the modern style quarterback in the thirties that, uh, once passing, once the NFL opened up to passing in 1933, that's when the quarterback position began to change. And actually I detail all this in the book and, and, uh, it has a lot to do with the racial composition of quarterbacks over the years. But yeah, it's not easy to say. I mean, Fritz Pollard, you know, it's in a box score, so it happened. But uh, then those single wing guys, and then the guys that you mentioned in the fifties, Willie Thrower and 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 different fellas. You know, they got a, a, a couple of snaps. The first starter was Marlon Briscoe in nineteen sixty eight. That's modern. So, uh, but George Talfaro certainly was. A, but he was a, like a wildcat quarterback, but nonetheless a quarterback. So. It's all over the map, but you sort of, it's, it, it has to do with changing strategy in football. You, you know, the point is made, but the details, uh, you can debate. Stating that Marlon Briscoe is the first starter, you, you know, even, even all that I know about football, I hadn't realized that Marlon Briscoe was the first starter. And that was in 68, I believe. Right. That's correct. First modern black starting quarterback, he was with the Denver Broncos. He was a rookie. He had been a really good college quarterback at a little at the University of Omaha, they called it then. Small school. He was really good, shifty runner, strong passer, great leader, set all sorts of records. The Broncos drafted him as, uh, this is absolutely what happened to every good black quarterback back then, drafted him and said, you'll be a defensive back. And he said, well, let me at least, he negotiated with them. Let me Three days in training camp. Can I show you what I can do at quarterback? And they grudgingly said yes. So he did a real nice job in those three days. But nonetheless, they put him back at defensive back. But what happened is the season started. The Broncos were not very good that year. Um, they, and, and all the quarterbacks, all the white quarterbacks got injured. So they had no choice. They put, they put him in the game. And uh, it was a seminal moment. And, and he started playing. And he came in as a sub in a couple games, and then he started, and he did very well. Uh, had a nice touchdown to interception ratio, ran up a lot of offensive yardage. I mean, the Broncos didn't win all the games, but it was very clear uh, that it's certainly the caliber of AFL football then, which was good. Marlon Briscoe was quite capable of being a quarterback. Uh, and so he, he ended the season with five starts and good stats, and the Broncos rewarded him by basically saying, you'll never do that again. You will never be quarterback. And uh, he had to change teams and change positions to, to keep his career going. He went to the Bills as a receiver. 
And then he went on to the Miami Dolphins, was on that undefeated championship team as a wide receiver. So he's known more for that, but he could have been a really nice uh, quarterback for a long time. Pretty clear in pro football. Yeah, and around that time in the late 60s, you kind of start to see some evolution. You had Eldridge Dickey drafted in the first round um, by the Raiders out of Tennessee State, ostensibly drafted as a quarterback. Now, like you said, they, they moved him to wide receiver, but the thinking at first, at least, was to give him a, an attempt at quarterback. Yeah, in the first round, just blew the minds of a lot of people in pro football that they did that. Pro football was so different then. It's it's almost apples and oranges because around later, they drafted Kenny Stabler. They drafted another quarterback. And they already had Daryl LaMonica, who was the MVP of the league the year before. So in the salary cap era, started in the 90s, no team would ever do that. Uh, you, you, number one, you can't stack all those players at one position. You, you would never start a draft with two quarterbacks who weren't going to play. Crazy stuff in hindsight. And certainly the Raiders were, were thinking, yes. Uh, I mean, it's to their credit that they drafted him, you know, and Al Davis said all the right things in the aftermath. We don't care whether he's polka dot in terms of the, you know, his, uh, his race. And, uh, they hoped he would be an all-time star because he was an, another player who just had amazing electric talent and uh, anyone could see it but uh he he did get shifted to receiver turned out right away there were too many good quarterbacks there and he got discouraged and you know they found things they didn't like about him uh it was amazing and and part of the story of of the evolution of the black quarterback is the style of football that was played in the pros for so long in which the quarterback was asked to drop straight into the pocket don't move around it was it was held against you if you were if you scrambled the offensive lineman didn't like it the coaches didn't like it and in elder sticky's case it was held against him that he could run like the wind and if a play broke down even if he did well, they didn't want it. And so he wound up just never having, never taking a snap in pro football in a regular season game as a quarterback. Marlon Briscoe's line was, he's the best quarterback we never saw. <laughs> yeah, that's a great line. And yeah, I have seen a, a little bit of footage of Eldridge Dickey in college. And, you know, they, they use that moving pocket at Tennessee State, kind of like what you would see nowadays in the NFL he was mobile and and the irony was you know he came around late 60s that's just before guys like Fran Tarkenton and Kenny Stabler made that kind of improvisation at quarterback something and Roger Staubach too something that that became you know a thing of beauty and, and a weapon yes uh, very much so and and his, his timing was just off that way and uh, but his 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 college coach uh, John Merritt is a, certainly a legend legendary black college football coach. And uh, when I was researching this book, I just was going through the newspaper files and and his, some of his comments were amazing. What he he could it's almost like he saw the future. He said, you know, one of these days, one of these days, and I hope it's with Eldridge, but there's going to be a quarterback who can run and it's going to turn the NFL upside down. 
And I said, boy, now that, those are prescient words, you know. I mean, that, that is, <laughs> that is what happened. But, uh, it happened about 45 years after Eldridge Dickey, unfortunately for Eldridge. But, uh, so it, some people could see the future, but, uh, the, the, the sport was not ready for it on a general basis at that point. And, uh, it's important to point out that just, just like society, there were people within the NFL, within the power structure and decision makers, who um, who were willing to give anybody an opportunity. And just like in society, you had that too. You know, we're talking about prevailing stereotypes here. But you you, yes. you got to chat with Upton Bell, who who you know is a, a good friend of this program, good friend of mine, and and um, listeners are very familiar with Upton. And and Upton was out scouting players. Um, anybody he, he was looking to get anybody he could get for the Colts and uh you spoke with him for the book what what did you uh what did you glean from Upton well as always Upton fascinating and uh boots on the ground uh, recollections are amazing and uh, yes he was scouting for the Baltimore Colts in the early in the mid 60s just getting into football uh you know and and he's 20 something years old as he said every other scout was 60 and uh, those he heard those long-held prejudices uh, routinely. They'd be somewhere, and they'd say, "Oh, look at that quarterback! Oh, he'll be a good receiver, a good, a good running back, or whatever." And and Upton, being uh, younger, you know, more of that generation of the '60s, was like, "Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, he's a good quarterback. Why can't he play quarterback?" And so he not only heard the old school thinking. Uh, he then tried to do something about it. He ultimately was uh, uh, scouting director for the Colts and then general manager of the Patriots. And he he was ready. To, he drafted a black quarterback in the third round of the Baltimore Colts when they had Johnny Unitas. Carl Douglas was his name. And he didn't have – Upton still feels guilty about it because he didn't was not there to lobby for him as a, as a roster spot uh, after having drafted him because he'd changed jobs. And so he was very much in the corner of these 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 young black guys that are playing quarterback in college. They could play in the pros if given an opportunity. He firmly believed it then, and he's another one years ahead of his time. So yeah, there there were guys like that that were great and uh, coaches as well. Chuck Knox is a coach that some people uh, historians were you know he was a good football coach in the seventies and. He's the one that put James Harris on the field as a starting quarterback for the L.A. Rams in 1974 when really no other coach in the history of football to that point had said, I'm going to put a black quarterback under center uh, as a, my starter. So Chuck Knox is definitely another. And uh, you can go through it. You know, guys that were willing to, to buck the system and, and, and give opportunities because that's what it took for that door to open at all. And yeah, bring, bringing us to James Harris, you know, Grambling quarterback, counseled under Eddie Robinson, was an underclassman, I think, at the time when Eldridge Dickey uh, was was coming up at Tennessee State, growing up uh, in Monroe, Louisiana, I believe. Right. And, right. Um, you know, so he grew up around Grambling. Um, and um, then he gets coached by Eddie Robinson. And Eddie also, I guess, uh, from what, what we've gleaned from an interview with James Harris for the uh, HBCU oral history that, that we're putting together 
Coach Robinson had a talk with Howard Cosell. And Howard Cosell said, you know, I think within a few years, you know, America will be ready to see somebody. You know, can you produce a quarterback? And uh, he came back and, and chatted with James Harris. What can you tell us about James Harris and his trajectory? Because he's got a great story, too. He has an amazing story. And Howard Cosell, by the way, he needled Eddie Robinson on national television. He said, Eddie, you've produced players at every position. Why can't you produce a quarterback? And Eddie Robinson just, I think it got under his skin a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, it's a classic Howard Cosell story. And the way James tells the story is that Eddie Robinson flew back from New York. He filmed the interview straight to uh, James's house and said, you're going to be it. You know, we're, I'm going to groom you. You know, you're six foot four, 210 pounds big arm you're it you know you're going to be the first pro howard cosell has given me trouble here and i'm going to this you're going to be the one that uh, is going to shut him up and so he did he did groom james harris james uh i interviewed for the book is just an unbelievable interview and and uh, such a tale to tell coming out of the south uh drafted by the buffalo bills in 1969 uh, in the eighth round, when he, he certainly had uh, talent to go a lot higher, he went after a number of white quarterbacks who never sniffed a roster. Uh, but that that was par for the course then. So he goes to Buffalo. Uh, that part of his story is as amazing as anything as a rookie. It's the year O.J. Simpson is there. And they put up O.J. at the Hilton, and they put up James Harris at the Y. Uh, this is for a rookie camp. For six bucks a night, he's staying at the Y. Wow. And uh, he does not have any money. I mean, he flew up there. He, he didn't, His football, again, was so different. He didn't have an agent. Eddie Robinson negotiated his contract. And, and of course, the Bills lowballed him. And he went to the team and said, look, you know, while this contract gets done, I need a little bit of money. I'd like, if I want to get a sandwich or something. And, and they said, okay. And they gave him a job cleaning his teammates' cleats in the locker room. So That is this, unbelievable. <laughs> It's it's an amazing story, and so what's really amazing about it is in training camp starts, and he wins the job in the through training camp in the preseason. They had Jack Kemp. They had, he's the starting quarterback on opening day for the Buffalo Bills. I mean, his talent came through uh, after having cleaned the cleats several months earlier. So uh, he yeah, didn't keep that... the job for long. They, he was benched by halftime in the first game, and they didn't they never really played him much ever again. That summer is just un- unbelievable. Wow, and and I, I don't think that too many people realize that both James Harris and O.J. Simpson both played in the a- AFL. That is a very interesting point uh, of the whole thing. Uh, these are not NFL teams. Uh, that that is the Marlon Briscoe AFL, James Harris AFL, and uh, so really, they're the the NFL teams were slow on the draw it wasn't until the 70s really wasn't until the 70s for the nfl with james harris being the first starter and first one to get any sort of chance that was 1974 he goes to the rams he was out of football for a year after the bills cut him and there was no interest really in him and finally eddie robinson got him uh, a, a a position on the taxi squad of the rams because he knew tank younger Tank Younger was uh, had played at Grambling in the 40s and 50s, and he was one of the first black players 
in the NFL after World War II, and he was now a scout for the Rams. He was a grambling product, and and so Eddie Robinson prevailed on Tank to get James Harris onto the taxi squad. And so from that point, he winds up winning the job eventually. And uh, and he played for two years. They were in the NFC Championship game twice. They barely lost one of them. He was like one weird play away from taking the Rams to the Super Bowl in 1974, which would have changed the narrative drastically. But uh, there was a weird penalty down on the goal line, and the Rams wound up losing to the Minnesota Vikings. So he almost went to the Super Bowl. So it would have been uh, quite a story there. Wow, wow. The weird twists and turns of NFL history. And, and that's that's quite an example there. Now, when we get to the late 70s, that's that's when I was, um, you know, I was I'm not quite old enough to remember the 74 season. But I do I do start remembering 76 was was the first uh, Super Bowl. I remember Super Bowl 11. And I grew up in the Midwest in, in Wisconsin around the Packers market. Now, by the, the time I really started watching football of 77, 78, you know, Vince Evans is the starting quarterback for the Bears, and Doug Williams is the starting quarterback for the Buccaneers. So for us in the Midwest, we had half the division um, as black starting quarterbacks. But, but over the years, I realized that those were the only two black starting quarterbacks in the league at the time. Um, so it's interesting that they were uh, Doug Williams and Vince Evans both in the same division. <laughs> yes, and they played each other. Uh, there's a game in 1979, late September game, where they started against each other. That was a first. Two black quarterbacks starting against each other in the NFL. I'm not sure it happened again for a while. It might have been close to 20 years. I mean, I don't have that in front of me. But, um, the yes, they were. And, uh, you know, Doug Williams certainly had been drafted in the first round. And the, the Bucks were invested in him, and he took them. They were the worst team in the league by far uh, when he was drafted, and he was there for five years. They were in three times in the playoffs, one time in the NFC Championship game, and he was ready to sail on into the future with uh, with the Bucks. But Hugh Culverhouse, the owner, played hardball with him, and well, he wound up not signing with them, and was so disgusted, so disgusted that he was out of football for a year. And then he was in the USFL. And so Vince Evans also went to the USFL. And so um, that's when Warren Moon comes to the NFL from Canada in 1984. He is the only black starting quarterback. Vince Evans and Doug Williams are gone. Uh, They are not in the NFL. And so really, it starts from scratch again. Unbelievably, in the 64th year of the NFL, they're starting from scratch with black starting quarterbacks with Warren Moon in with the Houston Oilers. Wow. And Warren Moon, such an incredible story uh, in himself. And I've, I've been blessed to be able to, to chat with Warren uh, for the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast and, and get to chat with him at length. And, and as well as Lee Steinberg, a little bit about his situation now he he's coming out of college in uh 78 now i always make this point same year earl campbell came out coming out of uh coming out of college in 1978 and uh warren's and lee steinberg who's his agent they're, they're pretty much uh being told that uh warren despite winning the rose bowl and being mvp of the rose bowl he's not seen as a quarterback 
Right. It's just the classic tale that it happened to good black quarterbacks, not all of them, but almost all of them, almost all of them, uh, to that point, 1978. We don't want you a quarterback. You'd you be a good running back. You'd be a good receiver. I think they wanted Warren to be a running back. So he had told them, he had sent letters, I think, or, or at least Steinberg had, had told the teams when they called, said he's not changing position. So, you know, you, you make the choice there. He's going to be a quarterback. So he goes undrafted. He just went on. It was like, okay, well, here's where we think of you. And uh, he goes undrafted and winds up playing in Canada. Went to the Canadian League, and I, this I detail in my book. That's where a lot of the uh, the real college stars, black quarterback college stars, went, was to Canada. There were uh, really major stars. Condridge Holloway at, uh, at Tennessee, the first black quarterback in the SEC. Uh, a great talent. That, I mean, if he was playing today, Condridge Holloway, with the RPOs and the way the, way the offenses, uh, the quarterback moves around, he would have been devastating. But uh, back then, he so he went to Canada. So Warren, uh, a few years later, does the same thing and wins the Great Cup five years out of six. He's just completely dominant in the league. And and uh, from the get-go, as a professional, he's everything that we would see from Warren for the 15 years he was in the NFL, which was cool in the pocket, big arm, mobile, able to make all the throws, under pressure, cool, just a elite quarterback, period. And uh, so he wins titles in uh, Canada, comes to Houston, and signs there. And he's in the league for the next 16 years as an elite quarterback. And I don't think anyone changed the narrative, did more to change the narrative. I mean, Doug Williams winning the Super Bowl certainly was the seminal moment uh, in 1988. But Warren Moon was really the one that changed a lot of minds on black quarterbacks just by being such a class elite quarterback for as long as he was through probably the still to this day through the most beautiful ball that i've seen i mean just a beautiful spiral had just a perfect arc to it just a tremendous passer and, and the one thing I always love to bring up, and, and I alluded to it before, but the, I think one really important thing to remember about Warren Moon is when he came into the league in 1984, even though he had graduated in the same class as Earl Campbell, who had a Hall of Fame career, Earl Campbell only had two years left in his Hall of Fame career. Earl Campbell only played two more years after Warren came in to the NFL. And Warren ended up being, when Warren retired, he was he had the third most passing yards in NFL history behind Dan Marino and John Elway. So it's like you add in you add in another six years and two of those years in Canada, you know, he probably wouldn't have posted them in the NFL, but two of those years he threw for five thousand yards. In the, yep. in the Canadian League. So you had some of those numbers in. You know, you're talking at that point, you know, he, he, may, have, he may have come close to Marino's record, if, if not topped it, by, by the end of his career. Yes, yeah, so I mean, basically from a statistical standpoint, six of potentially his best years were taken away. His NFL statistical standpoint, I'm saying. Six of his best years, uh, 20, ages 21 through 27. So that's gone. I mean, what did Marino do in those years? A lot. So, <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Warren, yes, could easily be the all-time guy. 
all-time leader in that. And uh, he did throw for, I think, over 70,000 yards as a pro. I don't know that anyone has topped that if you add Canada into it. So uh, just uh, an amazing figure in this story and a keeper of the flame, I might add, to this day. Uh, still, I interviewed him, as you have, I interviewed him at length for this book, and and he is still ready when he ever sees sees anything uh, that he feels like is a vestige of the old school thinking. He's the first one to point it out and find a camera or somebody to talk to and get a headline on it. You know, he will gladly do that. This is what was going on, you know, 50 years ago. Can't believe it's still going on. So he, he will he will always do that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's hard to believe, you know, Warren had had trouble finding a scholarship. He had to play Juco. Um, to even get a scholarship to play quarterback, and uh, you know, as as he said, you know, he was he was he was going to quit football if he couldn't play quarterback. Yep, law school. He's going to go to law school. So uh, that that's uh, you know, I, I don't know how close he came, but uh, that was his plan. Now, the, the one other guy I'd like to talk about that I think is is really important to bring up is Randall Cunningham. Uh, because he came in, um, I think he was playing during Warren Moon's career, uh, probably late 80s, if I remember right. Late 80s, early 90s, Randall Cunningham. For, for those of us who remember Randall Cunningham coming in, he was incredible. He looked like a Hall of Famer, you know, by his third or fourth year. And then uh, he suffered suffered that injury but but what what is uh what can you tell us about randall cunningham and where, where does he fit into this this narrative well i, I sort of uh, from a narrative standpoint see warren moon randall cunningham doug williams as sort of a generation it's the first generation of, of guys that really got on the field and accomplished things and started to change minds and uh, Warren, we've talked about Doug Williams. He did it by winning a Super Bowl as a starting quarterback. Uh, Randall's uh, point. Randall's part of it is, as you said, he he came into the league a year after uh, Warren. He was drafted in the second round, so it shows you things were changing a little bit. And the Eagles uh, took him a year or two to sort of figure out what to do with him. But Buddy Ryan was in place as the head coach. And Buddy's a, a, a Buddy was a defensive coach, and and his idea was we're going to have a great defense, and we're just going to let Randall. Uh, we're going to let Randall do whatever he can do. <laughs> do your thing on <laughs> offense. We'll give you the ball. So uh, they. What's really important about that was, uh, as I said before, that you know the, the the prototype was a straight drop back white quarterback. Don't move around. Randall clearly had unbelievable speed and elusiveness and as well as a great throwing arm and was most effective sometimes throwing on the run so the eagles let him do that they let randall be randall and didn't try to change him and there was an example of a of another example of someone willing to stick their neck out a little bit buddy ryan in that case and they were rewarded for it i mean they didn't get to a super bowl with randall but he was an amazing talent uh, uh, who just ran and threw and was a playmaker. And the NFL had never really seen a quarterback like that. And uh, went to Pro Bowls and, you know, they went to the playoffs. And just a playmaker, 
that just changed the the it's just changed what a fan watching could expect from a quarterback position when you saw him running around doing what he did and so uh you know his his contributions and again he played a long time and and uh, 10 years i think in philadelphia and then he bounced around a little he was with the vikings had a great year with the vikings as an older quarterback and and so he's he's another one those three really together just changed so many minds and were the first ones to open the door yeah and and randall cunningham you know when he came into the league like you said nobody had seen anybody like randall cunningham and he just had to you know it's one of those things you had to be there because um you know he didn't uh you know he had he had two knee injuries i think he had he had one that knocked him out for um i think it might have been the first or second game of the year against the packers and yeah early yeah like his fifth year or something like that yeah and that really interrupted his career and then i think he he had another serious injury later but He's one of those guys that, you know, he kind of kind of falls into the Billy Sims category. Like, if he hadn't had, like, that devastating injury, we'd be talking about Randall Cunningham all day. I got, I got several pages in my book on the – he – there's one touchdown in particular. It was on Monday Night Football. They were playing the Giants, and he, they're, on the, they're in the red zone. They're on, like, the five-yard line. He rolls right, and Carl Banks just levels him just levels him and knocks him horizontal to the field and he maintains it puts his arm his hand down maintains his balance keeps rolling right takes another hit but as he's taking the hit he throws a touchdown pass and talk about one of those moments where you had to be there um uh, i mean no one had ever seen that uh, really from a quarterback uh, and what was it? Uh, the first 50 years of Monday Night Football, they did the top 100 plays. That play was on it. Uh, just a little touchdown pass. But if you see it, you'll go, how in the world did that happen? You know, guy just absorb just a leveling hit. Remain upright, throw a touchdown pass. Uh, every, pro football went crazy when they saw that play. Yeah, well, John, it's been it's been great chatting with you, and I really love having you on the program. I hope everybody checks out Rocket Men, the the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. Again, you know, just another great book that you've put out. Just great research, great writing. Um, is there anything uh, else important that that you think uh, you'd like to add? Well, I do carry on the the narrative into the current uh, century, the current era. I love talking about the the guys we did. They're so important. They are the pioneers. Uh, and I bring it into the current era with Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and uh, how football has changed, uh, really, in the last, I'd say, 12, 13 years and what quarterbacks. We're seeing so many more black quarterbacks now. It's changed dramatically. I think 14 of the 32 teams the first uh, weekend of this NFL season, they started black quarterbacks. So we're, that is a dramatic change. I think it's, it's a permanent change. I mean, it's we're going in the right direction. These teams no longer seeing color, certainly, uh, uh, at the position. Uh, so I detail a lot of that and, and uh, the generation that really changed it. I think was the generation of Cam Newton and, and, uh, Colin Kaepernick and 
Russell Wilson uh, came into the league, and that was the moment when the NFL said, "We don't, we we really, finally and forever, are not going to ask you to be a drop back quarterback." Look at what you you know they were rocket men. They could run, they could throw, and the NFL teams changed their offenses to suit their talents instead of the other way around. Instead of taking this talented guys and saying you have to fit our system, they changed the offenses. And so now, twelve years later, you're seeing. Almost every NFL offense uh, with, uh, you know, the run pass option and quarterbacks, uh, there's a lot of unpredictability and and uh, it has you can still be a drop back quarterback, but there's you there are many other ways to do it now at that position. And so it's just changed the game fundamentally. And and uh, it's uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, yeah, it's all in there. And I appreciate coming on with you and uh, and having the chance to talk about it. All right, John. Well, I'd love to have you on again and just just sit down and chat NFL history. You know, I've really loved a lot of your books, Ten Gallon War, that first season, and we're both, you know, football history geeks. It'd be great just to uh, chat and uh, talk shop together. Be great. I uh, would love it. Lots of fun. Really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Remember to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com for great football history articles. Transcriptions of some episodes are available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics, spelled S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their transcription services.